a lot of times we want to turn that lens of creating an, inclu an inclusive uh, an authentic space to work on other people but we really have to look at ourselves and our unwillingness to do that especially when we're in a leadership role it's really hard to ask somebody something that we're not willing to do right and so we have to have make that great first step this is the leadership 480 podcast Hi, leaders, and welcome back to the Leadership 480 podcast. I'm your host, Beth Alms, and today I'm talking about how we can step up to become more inclusive leaders who give both ourselves and our teams room to be more authentic and, by extension, more engaged, productive, and satisfied at work. I'm very excited to welcome my guest today, Ash Beckham, who you might recognize from one of her multiple viral TED Talks, the most famous of which is Coming Out of Your Closet. Ash is a speaker and a self-dubbed accidental advocate for the LGBTQ community. She's also the author of Step Up, How to Live with Courage and Become an Everyday Leader. Ash, welcome to the Leadership 480 podcast. Uh, thanks so much, Beth. I'm excited to be here. So... In your popular TED Talk, you discuss the topic about coming out of your closet, which is obviously a term often used to the, for the LGBTQ community, but your point is that everybody has some kind of closet, something they're holding back from being their authentic selves at work, and that um, it's really hard to come out of that closet. And when it comes to work, there might be some folks who kind of say, listen, I don't need to be authentic at work. I'm just a professional and I don't need other people to be authentic. Just do your job. But I think there's some benefits of being authentic at work. So how do you see that play out? Why should you be more authentic at work? Absolutely. I think you can come to it from a couple different angles, right? We all have uh, the priorities and, and the ways we work best. And one of it is just purely efficiency, right? If you think yeah. of if you have to go through the mental gymnastics of what version of yourself you have to be in certain <laughs> circumstances, you're just genuinely less present, right? And I think mm -hmm. a lot of times we want to turn that lens of creating an, inclu an inclusive uh, an authentic space to work on other people, but we really have to look at ourselves and our unwillingness to do that, especially when we're in a leadership role. It's really hard to ask somebody something that we're not willing to do, right? And so we have to have, make that brave first step as leaders. So I think, you know, some people on on that lens, it's, it speaks to efficiency, right? I think yeah. also authenticity is so critical. We're talking about innovation and creativity, right? If I can't talk about what I did last weekend because I'm afraid to say who I did it with because people might judge me, am I going to bring this new kind of wild off the wall idea to give us a more... Um, creative lens on a project that we're working on, I'm not because I don't feel safe, right? And so for me to be vulnerable in so many aspects, I have to feel safe. And then recruitment and retention is similar, right? Like there's there's another angle of of why it's so important to to be authentic. And again, because I think we can have the policies, but in practice, it's the people at the at the workplace that are actually creating that culture, right? And so when we create these cultures of authenticity, we're laying the groundwork for it. And so people see that when when they interview and, and you know, again, you can have your best policy on, on your website, but if people come in and don't see it in practice, they're going to move on. And then that stunts us in a variety of ways too. So I think authenticity is really the key to having this holistic workplace where everybody can be themselves and therefore we can all perform at our best. 
Yeah, I, I really agree. And one of the things I often see too is, um, and have probably done myself, by the way, uh, is be sort of a watered down version of yourself. Like, like yeah, it's me, but I don't want to tell them all of it. They'll think I'm crazy or <laughs> I don't want to say what I, I really love about this. And it's a little bit disappointing sometimes. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a conversation with someone that like, I didn't even really necessarily share their passion or understand what they were talking about, but I loved their love for whatever it was that they were doing. Um, do you see that happen a lot? Like people kind of want to take the edge off of themselves? For sure. And I don't think, you know, our authenticity bar isn't, you know, you you don't have a responsibility to tell everybody every single deep, dark secret you've ever had, right? Like that doesn't, mm -hmm. there's, it's it's not, authenticity isn't black or white. You really mm -hmm. have the ability, there's nuance there. And I think we're asking people now, especially new leaders and emerging leaders specifically, to be 5% more brave, 10% more brave. Because I feel like, I'm sure you've had this experience too, where you you do, you become a little bit more authentic or you find that connection with somebody and it's hard to go back, right? It's like coming out of the closet in any way, right? You Once you do it, it's really hard to go back in. And I think once you start being authentic, it, it it becomes less of something on your checklist. It less less of something you do and more of who you are, right? Mm -hmm. There is no, I'm not hiding certain aspects of my life for fear of repercussion or judgment in the workplace. Does that mean that I have a responsibility for full disclosure of every single thing? Absolutely not. In the same way that we don't do that with all of our friends, right? There are mm -hmm. these tiered versions of it, but there are certain things where I am one of an affinity group, or I have this human experience that is affecting the way that I am in my job that I can disclose. And I think it's more of an opening up to people. You know, I feel like rarely I can think of a few times someone has been authentic to me and I have thought less of them because of that. I almost always think more of them, right? <laughs> that they have the bravery to say the challenges they're going through or the struggles that they've had, right? And And I think that that's, you know, that's walking into a meeting with your boss when you know you're fully distracted because you have a sick kiddo at home and you know that you and your significant other are going to have to flop at a time that's earlier that probably, you know, covers a meeting or you, there's somebody in the other room that's crying to, to say, I don't want to be treated differently because this is happening. But for you to know the full picture of me, You've got to know why. Am, am I resistant to be able to get that done by six o'clock tonight because I just don't want to do it or because I have to go to my kid's school play tonight, but I'll have it done by eight, right? Like mm -hmm. those nuances of the humanity of who we are at work really gives us the commitment that we have to our organization when they see us as more than just that headcount, right? And, and so there's accommodations that are there in place, but but to be able to say, you know, in the middle of a late night meeting, at seven o'clock to, to say, okay, we're going to take a break. Or as the leader to say, we're going to take a break because I want to say goodnight to my kids. Let's meet back in 20 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. That that to me is what authenticity looks like in the world that we live in, live in right now. I love your example of how a leader can demonstrate that authenticity too. And it makes it so much easier for everyone else to then react that way. I, you know, when you have a boss who says, listen, I'm going to prioritize my kids. Not that this isn't important. It is, but I'm going to go prioritize that. And then we'll return to this or we'll do whatever. We'll, we'll hit it hard tomorrow. Um, it's such a powerful way of, of modeling that for everyone else. And sometimes you're afraid of that as the leader, right? That you're going to be looked at as weak. Right. And I think that you, you frame it in a certain way, right? We're not, 
I'm not going home to have dinner with my kids. I know we all want to do that or to let my dog out or meet my best friend, right? All the, all the things like it isn't just the family, but I, I will take a break from what we are doing right now because there's a window which I can say goodnight to my kids. And then I am here with you until we get it done. Right. I, it's, mm -hmm. it's both ends of it that you can, it's the both. And, and I think a leader, I think a lot of times, whether it's the way that, you know, work is portrayed on social media or in film or just kind of how we've been raised of what leadership looks like, that that softness is going to lead people to take advantage of us or think they can get away with more. And, and it's just quite the opposite. You want that permission for your individuality to be able to be brought in as part of your job. When so many of us have been working at home and working you know, non-traditional nine to five hours, we, we've really, I think, displayed our capacity to make work fit our life. And we're working longer hours. And we're checking our email later but the things that are a priority, going for that run, catching that opening of an art exhibit, all of the things that we do in our real life, there's a room for that when we can be honest and direct with our boss. And other organizations are doing it and other teams are doing it. And our ability not to puts us at a competitive disadvantage for recruitment and retention because that's what people expect and want now. But again, it, like you said before, it has to be modeled by the leader. Like We have to be able to, to do that. And there's a piece of it, too, I think that there can be um, there are some folks who might take a tactic that's more along the lines of like, you know, I don't mind to get you can kind of go do what you need to do, but I don't want to see it. And maybe that's fine where they say, um, especially when it comes to some really personal things around diversity. So, you know, I've often heard something like hey, I don't see race or I don't see religion or I don't see sexuality. I just see you as a professional. Um, does it matter, do you think, to bring those things to the workplace? Is that one way to to go about it? Well, I think a huge piece of that is the people that say that are the people that are in the majority. You know what I mean? It is mm -hmm. the like straight, white, cisgendered male who says, I don't see it. Well, I, I feel like to a certain extent, like you've never had to, you've never experienced it. And if you don't know, like if you don't, if you don't care who I sleep with, that's how, like, it doesn't matter to me who you go home to, right? But if you don't know that, then you don't know what it's like for me to walk down the street holding my wife's hand and have to make a decision to drop it or not. And as a straight mm -hmm. cis man, you've probably never had to make that call, right? And that affects me. If I'm a person of color in an organization and we go through the summer that we went through with, through with George Floyd, that affects me as a human. And and if you can't see that there's that difference, then you're not seeing me. And does that change the way that I work? Do I need you to check in every time I say I went out to dinner with my wife to see if I had to drop her hand? No, but I experience the world in a different way than you do. And to say you don't see it means you don't see me. And that's not, I think a lot of times that comes from this this perspective or this assumption that you need to know everything that there is that you have to go through this like crash course in diversity and and that's mm -hmm. not it it's it's listening it's taking the time to educate and and I think it's just an acknowledgement that the paths are different because of some of these things that these extrinsic things that we don't control that the world affects us because you can create the most amazing inclusive nurturing workplace in the world and I don't go to the grocery store at work right? I don't take my kids to the park at work. I interact in the community in a way that can't be protected by the things that happen at work. And so there is an impact 
on me in so many of those ways. And for my my supervisor to to not see it, and I think even worse, be unwilling to see it, um, just doesn't create that sense of connection and belonging that I want in, in the workplace. And I don't want to talk about it all the time either, right? The tokenism of like, every time something happens in the LGBTQ community, like, do we go talk to Ash in accounting because she's gay? No, like that's a, I don't want that either. <laughs> But to right. to think that, you know, again, it's that black and white. And that's the thing that's so hard about this is that there's there's nuance to it and, and nuance gets sticky and dirty. And there's sometimes no right answers. And I think the right answers are getting to know the people you work with as humans, not as coworkers. I think you bring up some interesting um, dilemmas where it, it people can also start to fear a little bit of, you know, even when they're well-meaning, they become afraid of doing the wrong thing or approaching a sensitive topic in the wrong way. So, um, for example, something terrible happens in the LGBTQ community and I'm sitting there and go, oh, should I, should I ask Ash how she's feeling? Should I not ask? Is she going to be offended? Is she not going to be offended? And so I do nothing because I'm afraid it might be perceived um negatively or I might do it wrong or use the wrong term or do something like that but you talk and write a lot about um race as well so how can you foster and kind of ask for that sense of grace as well as um reciprocate it for those around you right I mean I think to to go to your first point I mean I think the only thing worse than saying the wrong thing is saying nothing and I do I absolutely appreciate in the world of cancel culture that we are, you know, everybody is ready for you to stumble and fall and trip and do the wrong things and then call you out for it. So of course that scares people. But I think as we're asking people to be allies, and again, my lens is always from the LGBTQ community, but this kind of transcends those diversity lines. If we want people to be our allies, we have a responsibility to be resources for them to be allies, right? To be that mm -hmm. person that says, hey, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know what you meant by that, but this is how it came off. Here's a place you can educate yourself around it. This is why pronouns are important, right? That we that we can recognize genuinely when someone is trying. And I would so many times over rather give somebody the benefit of the doubt and and be wrong about them then shortchange them or stereotype them on what I think they don't know and not give them a chance, right? And so I, I feel like there's there's this piece that feels incredibly empowering to me to the LGBTQ community is our ability to uplift allies, to make them bigger advocates on our behalf. Because the beauty, beautiful thing about allies is they're in so many places that we're not, right? Like I'm never gonna be in the men's locker room. But if mm -hmm. I have a solid ally that has the verbiage around why homophobic slurs are wrong and how to stop that, that person saying that is is so much more impactful than me, right? Or somebody, you know, I always look at people on like a ally spectrum, right? Of like aspiring allies and they're somewhere on there, but it's so much more relatable for somebody to go up to, again, a, a straight cisgendered person who is an ally of mine and ask about questions of, you know, how my wife and I conceived our children. What does healthcare look like? Any of those things that exist. How do we navigate all of that stuff? Because they figure they've probably had those questions, right? And that's like one less question they're asking me directly. It's so much less intimidating to ask an ally 
than to ask the person you're trying to ally for. So I feel like that resourcefulness um, feels like a, it has a ripple effect, right? If I can be a resource and then that person can come to me and say, hey, I have this question on pronouns, I don't really get it. Or we have the first trans person on our team. You're the only person I know in that space. Like, I don't know what to do, right? That that humility and, and vulnerability that we are all seeking the same answers and we're gonna figure it out together, I think is so much more empowering than read the book, follow these people on social media, come back when you know enough. You know, when you have your PhD in gender studies, then we can have a conversation. Like that's right. not, we're not bringing anybody to the table and we're not meeting people where they are, right? To be part of, of, of this movement of equity and inclusion, we have to have people at all levels, knowing that everyone is just incrementally making those strides. I think that point is so important around um, how how we stop making some assumptions too about people's intentions. You know, sometimes a question is just a question, or sometimes um, it's it is it is loaded, but maybe it's not as nefarious as you think it is. Um, and you've mentioned a number of times in in your books and in your talks about. Um, how when you're in a group who's like you, you you tend to assume their question is just a just a genuine question, and where when you're with people who maybe are not like you, you, ha- you bring all these assumptions. Well, if they like this, then they're probably also against this, and 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 you start to go down that chain, and none of that may be true. So, how do you start to? Do you have any tips kind of on starting to switch that voice in your head about the intentions of the person asking you? You know, because your body's going, oh, they they're asking me this because they're angry or they they have assumptions. Um, how do you start to flip that narrative? Yeah, I think part of it is just a genuine curiosity. Like we really, I think a lot of people that have been, that are, that are part of a historically marginalized group, survival has created really thick skin, which I think is important, right? Like you have mm-hmm. to take that double take in stride, take that microaggression in stride. Like if you reacted to everything, you wouldn't get very far. But also you become very quick in your assumptions because it feels in a lot of situations that it it feels familiar to life or death, right? Like your brain, when you're Mm -hmm. releasing cortisol and adrenaline, when you're getting to that fight, flight or freeze, it doesn't matter if the threat is real or perceived your brain reacts in the same way, right? As if it's like an offhanded comment from a coworker or a saber-toothed tiger, right? Like it's the same chemical <laughs> response in your body. So you have to take that moment. So I think like a deep breath is always important. I think um, a genuine curiosity of what, why, like why is that the perspective? What, what is the source of, of those questions? What is their history? Because so much, I feel like we always bring a lot of history of past wrongs, past micro, it's like this, it, it it kind of gets to a culmination point before we actually do something, but we bring our baggage too. To think that we're coming in clean, I mm-hmm. think would be a would would be a mistake, right? We are coming in with all of the histories that we've had of positive and negative interactions with people around assumptions. And so we want to stand our ground and stay firm, I think, in that way. And and it's hard sometimes it's hard to know where we are when we we can't put someone else's location down, right? But I think if we have a genuine curiosity and we want to know why they think what they think, especially in most work environments or general environments, like there isn't, there's ignorance 
But it, let's like let's not confuse ignorance and stupidity, right? Like ignorance is just a not knowing, a lack of exposure. Um, it has a negative context, but there's like a history that gets people there. It's what they've been taught. It's how they were raised. It's it's all of the historical things. And to think that we're going to change that in a 15 second soundbite is not going to happen. But to have <laughs> it continuing conversation, right? That we're not getting people to go from, you know, here to way up here, there are these little mini steps. We don't necessarily need them to think that their perspective is wrong. It's just that there's a different way, right? It's more of, mm -hmm. a, of an enlightenment. And I think when we share in that way, without the intention of changing someone's mind, just for them to see our perspective, it takes such a huge weight off our shoulders, mm -hmm. right? Because it isn't on us anymore. We, we share our story, we explain our way, we explain the way something they say affects us, then they know and, you know, and hopefully, you know, you do well and so you know better and then you do better. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that that is is what we're trying to get people to do. We want it to be so fast. We want to have these just like we want to just like flip people to allies as quick as we can. And, and it's it's a it's a if we want it to work in a real way and not in a performative, you know, you wear a rainbow lanyard for June way, but in an actual way then I think we need to know that it takes time, like changing minds takes time. Yeah, it doesn't happen in a moment. And um, some of the stories you have shared about some have struck me about like, it's amazing how like the questions of kids can be incredibly disarming at times of like, they come to these, they can almost be scary for us adults, because they will ask you anything with no hesitation you know that you know they'll ask you like oh are you fat are you poor like they will not care and ask you a question straight out but the amazing thing is is that it's just a genuine question they just want to know the yeah. answer yeah they're just giant data gatherers you know what yeah. i mean i feel like a little kid asking me if i'm a boy or a girl is no different than them being like is this a table or a chair like you our brains naturally want to categorize again like who am I if not relative to you? And so I know what it means to be a girl. What are you? Like how, and then I know these things about you. There's this, it is very categorical for them. And again, without all the things that are loaded, but there's a, you know, there's this political correctness, I think that doesn't allow us to have these straightforward conversations or like these assumptions that you should know better. And I, th I mean, then there's obviously value in that, but I think, gone too far that can be limiting and that goes to what you were saying earlier people that are afraid to say anything because they're going to say they're so fearful they're going to say the wrong thing the negative impact that would have is worse that fear or perceived threat of that is worse than any connection you have by saying the right thing it's like when you have a friend who's who has a death in the family and you're like oh i don't i don't want to bring it up i don't want to but if they're not thinking about it they're always thinking about it, right? Like yeah, it comes to them it. all the time. <laughs> they know about it. You're not like surprising them with it, right? Like, but right. you, we, we become, and that's the thing. There's this, you know, they have the people that like aren't trying. Then you have these, this huge section of the middle of people that want to try, but are so mindful and empathetic of the potential impact and hurt that they can cause that that overwhelms them into saying nothing. And and but if we can get that middle section, think of the amazing connection, education, and up leveling of allyship we can do if we can get that group brave enough to say something. And it's it's the same. That's the thing. It's like the other side of the same coin, right? The reason people aren't authentic at work, by far, 
is the mo the biggest reason is fear of repercussion or judgment, right? Like that's what we're afraid of. So so what we need to do as workplaces is make the space more safe, where you know in this cubicle, on this team, in this department, you do not have to fear repercussion for being who you truly are. It's the exact same with allies, right? It's just that who's sitting in the driver's seat are people that are in marginalized communities. It's the LGBTQ person or the person of color or the person with different abilities who's sitting there and saying, okay, like this is a safe space for your questions. Mm -hmm. Here you can be safe. Here you can be yourself. And I know you don't know what it's like to be me, but I would love to talk to you about it. Right. And you don't do that. And again, like it's not just because I see a pink triangle on somebody's cube, right? Like it's mm -hmm. a, we have a relationship. We talk about baseball or the weather or our kids in the same school or travel or whatever we do, like you start with that trust because trust builds connection and collaboration. But then when that happens, we can have these deeper conversations, but I don't, you know, it's, it's hard to sit in the space and say, we want people to be allies. We want people to be brave and not create a space for them to be brave, not be willing to answer those questions, not trust that their intention is good enough that if they say something that offends us, that's not a moment to correct and connect and say what it is, right? Like we LGBTQ community, people of color, marginalized communities, like we have as much to bring to this too. And that's giving people a safe space to land, to ask the questions, to get the information, to say the wrong thing in learning what the right thing may be. But we're, we're part of this too. We can't ask people to do what we're unwilling to do. And I, it applies to so many areas of life, whether it's LGBTQ or others. I was, um, you were reminding me of one of the stories in your book about someone who was, a, I think, a veteran, right, who wanted to, who was working at a very, like, uh, liberal, tree-loving organization and, and was afraid to really say much even about their own military service, just with the assumption, right, of like, oh, these folks are probably not supportive of my background. And chances are they're going to find a connection if they just were to share that, right? Yeah, and I love what you had said earlier. Like, if I I can be passionate about anything that you're passionate about. Like, when you break, I don't, it can be anything. It doesn't matter where I land on the spectrum. Like, you know, I think there's parameters around, like, hate and, you know what I mean? But just, like, sure. reasonable things that would be nothing I would ever engage in, don't have an interest in, like, have never gone. But if you love it, I am here for it, right? And mm -hmm. And that is that connection of humanity but but i feel like you have to if you bring that with all of the you know preconceived bias of what you're not even going to bring it up to me because you you assume what my position is going to be right and and i think we have these these markers of people of you know do i red flag when i hear somebody talk about the church service they went to right am i all of a sudden like oh religion homosexuality doesn't really work this person is bop, 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 right? We like categorize and we do whatever, mm -hmm. as opposed to like engaging, if it wasn't that thing that flagged me, nothing they said, nothing they did, nothing about them prior to that point, right? Except mm -hmm. my assumptions on them. But if they're passionate about the fundraiser that they had or the openness of celebrating their first female pastor, like I don't know until I ask, until I dive in. And again, like, we, it doesn't mean I have to go to the church. It doesn't mean I have to take up the hobby that somebody's talking about, but th that's the humanity where we make that connection of, of then I see it inevitably happens. I feel like when we have, we make those connections with people, 
that then you see something in your community, online, in the media that makes you think of them. Mm-hmm. And then that's mm-hmm. just a quick email, a quick text of, hey, I just saw this thing. It made me think of you. Hope you're well, right? It's again, we we see we see them as multifaceted. We see them as as more than just that job description or how they relate to me or our struggles at work from when end of, like whatever it is, we see each other as humans doing a job as opposed to a job description. And and that's how I want to be seen too, right? Does that mean I'm going to invite every single person over for my kid's birthday party? No. Or like my wife's, our anniversary party? No. But I'm I'm willing enough to dive in because if it matters to them, it matters enough to me to care about it. There's no, there's, there's no energy. I'm not making a compromise. There's no, you know, extension of energy that I don't have. It's literally just caring because they care. And I, you were kind of approaching a topic I wanted to ask you about a little bit too, is that, you know, 98% of the time, if you share with someone, you're going to find a connection. You're probably going to find they're much more accepting than you thought they were, or maybe they have, you know, whatever it is in your, you know, in the case of the military guy, you know, he found out the person he talked to at work, they had family in the military, they totally connected with everything. Um, and, and more often than not, you'll probably find that kind of uh, connection. There is a small chance in some circumstances that you're gonna, when you open it up, you learn something about someone that you really are uncomfortable with, or, and, um, you know, it's, as you mentioned in your book, it, it is a, it is a, perception and a reality for someone of how, of how they feel about something. And it's, um, so the question is when you find something about someone that maybe is something that you are at least at first uncomfortable with it, and it could be any variety of topics, right? Like as a leader, how do you start to like, think about that for yourself and question about like, so where do I go from here? I found out something about somebody that I didn't know before and it's making me feel uncomfortable What's my process for kind of dealing with that? Because I still really need to work with this person and connect with them. Well, I think there's a variety. I think we all have the ability to to make relationships just work-based, right? Like we don't Mm -hmm. have to, it doesn't have to be personal. If the quality of work is there, if the commitment, if the honesty, if the dedication is what it needs to be, we can have a very transactional relationship and that's fine. And I don't need, we don't need to be friends to work together. I don't need to get to the bottom of it. We can just interact. And as long as we are on the same page with expectations, it can just be that. And and that is fine. And, and I think even if you, you can approach somebody who just is unwilling to open up and that can, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, you don't have to keep going back to like break someone. <laughs> so what we're trying to do is like <laughs> right, right, break right. them into, you know what I mean? Like break yeah. them into authenticity. Is that our goal? So I think, you know, you, you let it go and you, and you step away. But if it's something that you, you learn in that way, I, to me, I'm just always so curious as to the why, mm-hmm. right? Like what, what gives them that perspective? why are they willing to share and and kind of dig into that a little bit and maybe they won't be willing to be vulnerable but i think that there's something really empowering especially as a leader is i know at this point in my life no one's on the things that i hold true in a significant way that can be offended i guess for lack of a better word no one's changing my mind on that like mm-hmm. i'm i you know my I believe my moral compass of right and wrong are pretty solid. There's nothing. And and I think for a lot of the LGBTQ community, we were, you know, we're 
so unsure and we have this change and then we say it and and we're worried about somebody's reaction and does it change who I am? I mean, I think we we it, it gets a little bit scary in that way, but when you're solid in who you are and I know I'm not trying to change their mind, I'm just trying to get to know them better. That's mm-hmm. the beauty about empathy, right? Like I don't have to agree with, I don't have to, you know, take on somebody else's opinion. I just want to know why they got to that opinion and what it would be like to Mm -hmm. experience the world Mm -hmm. in that way. That's all empathy. That's all empathy is. I, what would it be like to sit in, in their spot just for a moment? Right. And that gives you a compassionate understanding of almost everyone. And I think all we have to do is try to do that. All we have to do is try to engage. And again, I don't have to agree with them. I don't have to, we don't have to be friends. We don't have to like, you know, sit by each other at the company picnic. But I, I will have a better working relationship with that person if I put forth the effort to try to understand them. Now, there has to be, again, some reciprocity in that. And sometimes mm-hmm. you just kind of have to let it go and make it transactional. But as long as you try, you know you've put your your best foot forward in that. Again, with genuine curiosity, not trying to change their opinion, that then I think that's that's kind of the, the best you can do. Yeah, you don't ha- you don't have to agree, but that understanding of the why and the where they're coming from can go such an incredibly uh, incredibly long way. Um, so, one of the topics you also t- talk about in your book, it, it, you know, it's called Step Up, and one of the things that I think leaders have such a challenge with is figuring out when to step up, um, and that's for a lot of people that's really tricky to figure out how to do it at work. You know, nobody wants to be the PC police and not, I'm not even, and that's not even necessarily a good thing. And, um, you know, we don't want to embarrass other people at work, you know, call them out or correct them and things like that when it's not appropriate. So there's a balance, right. Of, of some moments of when do I step up and say something? When do I give people grace and let things slide? So, um, any advice you have on how we can step up appropriately, appropriately at work in a way that feels kind and inclusive and not, you know, embarrassing other people for not being as far along on the journey or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a couple different ways to approach that. I mean, the first is the idea that I, I referenced in the book that was from uh, Amber Hikes, who's just brilliant in her um, social organizational work. And it's this idea of calling in versus calling out, right? So you calling somebody in is kind of that, like the same way you would tell them that they have broccoli in their teeth. You know, you kind of pull them over after the meeting Mm -hmm. and say, Hey, sorry, I know this is hard, but I, and I know that this is new, but we have this new person on our team that goes by they, them pronouns. And I, you messed that up a couple of times and you said the wrong ones. You missed, it's not even messed up, right? You said the wrong ones a couple of times. And I think that might've been hard for them. It was really hard for me. I just wanted to make you aware of it, right? It's that like bringing the knowledge to the people. It's not like mm-hmm. in the meeting making it a big deal because what we what we're trying to do is have bring more people on team. Like we need to be inclusive of everybody. And by definition, in many circumstances, calling that person out is an exclusive behavior. Now there's some mm-hmm. situations where you need to call people out where that you know in a vendor meeting, you know, that that is not the language that we use. Like it is a very clear 
not here, not now, not ever statement. Mm -hmm. But those are pretty rare, right? It are those, it's those more nuanced conversations or the conversation someone has when, when somebody leaves the room, right? There are those smaller ones. And, and I think for me, if you start with a neutral opinion about most people, right? If you just kind of start from the center, if there's a behavior that they have and it starts to move you into this place of judging them or thinking wrong of them or thinking less of them, that's the time to say something, right? It's it's mm -hmm. it's a kind of an internal compass based on now I'm avoiding this person. Now, you know, the, the, there's this, you know, back channel conversation about them. Like once it starts to go negative, I think that's when we have the conversation, right? That's when we really try to bring people back in. Like, I think we're always constantly as, you know, leaders, you know, who, who's still in left out? Who can we bring in? And not every, this, I mean, inevitably there are going to be people that are going to be left out. It's the only way you can ever make decisions in a business, right? But for the most part, who are we leaving behind? Who doesn't feel like they have a place here? Who doesn't feel like they belong? And as, as I start to ostracize someone because their actions are falling short of my expectations, that's when I have that conversation. It's the same thing in the same way that you would have a, if we don't see it in the same way, but it's in the same way that things would come up on a performance review that you would bring up to somebody, or the same things in any DEI initiative that you're gonna have the similar conversations. It's a little bit more nuanced, the conversations are a little bit harder, but your bar of when you say something to someone is when they start to not hit the expectations that you have. And in the diversity inclusion space, that's no different, right? That's, we, we, we wanna correct. We wanna get to the point where we're not writing someone off. Your point too about feeling like we have to kind of move forward quickly, make some decisions, you know, is are we taking the time to be inclusive? Um, I get that argument. When you're working in a business, you know, a lot of times you're going really quickly and sometimes it feels like inclusion can slow you down. And you're probably it, there's different ways to think about it, but a lot of us are trying to just get through our day to day, meet certain deadlines. Um, but there was a story in your book that resonated with me where you, you talked about patience and the value of it and um, learning in, in managing a softball league with your dad of like the, the different styles of going about how you made decisions in a patient versus uh, quick thinking way. And then in the long run, it actually changed your efficiency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a huge, a huge point is people want answers, right? They look to us in leadership roles to have answers because a lot of times it's what do you do next? But I think taking that and it doesn't have to be it's just moments, you know, it is taking in all of the information because I think a huge piece of that sense of belonging is feeling that you're heard and you're never going to make everybody happy. But to know that someone's perspective is taken into consideration in the calculation of the final decision, people can sit with that. Like they they can work with you want more funding, but we don't have the funds now, but we hear that you need that. And as we go through the next round of funding, that is something that we're going to pay attention to. Right. Or we talk about what the marketing program is and how representative that is or what training looks like or where our outreach is. Right. People want to hear. They want to know that their voices matter, because if your voice doesn't matter, then you're just kind of a cog in the wheel. 
But that doesn't mean we have to do what everybody is asking. That's nobody expects that. It's an mm-hmm. impossible leadership position. But to take that breath between getting, and that can literally be a breath, or it can be after a meeting with all the feedback, I know what my decisions are going to be, but I'm going to sit on it for two hours and send out an email, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. if the final decision sits with me, I'm really going to process it. I'm going to I'm going to go through all the people that were there. I'm not going to make that knee-jerk decision. I'm going to think about the ways that we can get the most amount of needs met and then move forward, right? And be able to communicate that adequately. Because when people know that, again, that they know that their voice is at least heard, then they know that they're part of the solution. So I think it's taking that that space in time, mental space to be able to make make the call in the way with that long-term view in in perspective, I think is really, really, really critical. And that's going to eliminate a lot of rework and changes down the line, right? Like it might seem a little bit slower in the moment, but faster in the long term. Absolutely. Because I feel like everybody genuinely will bring their perspective. So you don't know the challenges you're going to run into if you're not hearing from this department or this engineer, or if if you're not hearing and to, to take the time to not accommodate, but make sure that those are part of the solution, again, you're going to run into people see it from their lens. And so they know where the stops are going to happen. And you can really avoid a lot of that um, because people want their leaders to make decisions, but they they want them to make the best decision. Right. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. that's their role is to make. I mean, right or wrong, I think, is probably something that you, you it's the decision is the decision when the decision was made. It was the best decision in the moment. The right or wrongness probably depends on external factors that happen after the decision was made so many times. But to make the best decision in the moment with all of the information available, that's that's all we can ask our leaders to do. Yeah, taking in those perspectives um, to do to do the best you can. So. I want to add one more piece to the conversation, which isn't, it's not strictly business related, but I think relatable for many leaders, which is, um, you know, for a lot of us having positions of leadership is not just about the job and the work, although obviously it is, it is for a certain paycheck at the end of the day, but, um, and wanting to do a little bit more to kind of change the world, leave a little bit of a legacy behind you. Um, and it struck me in, that, you talk about becoming an accidental advocate and in many ways too, also wanting to, you know, as more kids came into your life, wanting to do more and leave things a little bit better. And I think a lot of us have probably witnessed to, um, you know, the when you watch kids around you, the, the authenticity that they have when they're young. And sometimes you kind of watch that fade away as they get older and the social yeah. pressures on them start to fade away. All, all of a sudden they don't, they don't really like science anymore because it's not cool or whatever, whatever it is, you know? Um, but wanting to leave that better legacy. So when you think about the legacy you wish we would leave behind in the workplace for the next generation, um, what does that look like? What do you think the steps are that kind of gets us closer to that? Well, I think there's something so inspiring about the genuine authenticity of the new generation of workers, right? They mm-hmm. they don't know anything. They I think they have a lot of that kind of they've been celebrated a lot of a lot of them celebrated so long for being who they are. I mean, you have kids that are coming out in high school, right? Grade school, 
they they only know one way to be and that's how to be themselves and and you know hopefully for a lot of them they lived in environments where that was honored and not that they didn't go through struggles um but that they kind of came out the other side and there's something at least for the lgbtq community right so many people would be out but then they would get a job they'd be out in college they would get a job they go back in the closet and then they would eventually come out at work or maybe during a job transition or you know there would be a different time where they would come out where that is just absolutely not the case now right i mean not to say that people aren't still having you know those realizations about their life at, at different times in it but people are coming they know who they are there's there's so much representation in the media that you can see people that look like you no matter who you are in the world and so i think that gives you a way to identify yourself so i think that there's there's this inherent authenticity that is coming up through the ranks and so i think the sooner we celebrate it the better it's going to be uh, a way to to make sure that our leadership pool is representative of the people that we have that we're really doing the work to make sure marginalized voices are elevated not just represented by a senior leader who's the head of their uh, the head of their affinity group but rather by those voices themselves right i think we have this mm -hmm. collaboration especially around culture that has to be inclusive inclusive upper representatives from very tenures within the organization right if we want to make it truly inclusive um i think another huge thing we can do right now to create that legacy is really be honest about where we are as organizations relative to DEI. A lot of times we don't want to do that or you don't want to call it out. You don't want to see where you are on the scale. But if you don't know where you are, you can't figure out where you want to go. And I feel like those used to be internal metrics that were, you know, kind of kept under lock and key. And now organizations are becoming more and more open of of where they are and what their diversity scores internally are and how they're trying to make those better i think what gets measured gets changed in business and so the more that that's happening the more we're moving forward and i think that was probably a tough tough pill to swallow in the beginning because you never want to admit that there's room for improvement but there's room for improvement whether you're willing to admit it or not and as soon as you admit it you can start making the moves that are necessary you can get the attention of the c-suite and hey these this is a problem that we need to start addressing immediately if we want to be uh the most highly regarded organization in our industry right like that's just mm -hmm. the new industry standard do you it prompts another question of just um how close do you think like we're getting better, right? There, things are improving. You are seeing more. Um, we have some data in our, as we've recently surveyed, you know, we see a lot of data, especially among C-suite leaders that like, they kind of think DEI is done. <laughs> like we did it, check sure. it, we're done. And we see some things right. from folks lower down in the organization saying, we're not sure we're there yet. Um, what's your sense of kind of how far we are on that path? Like, are, are, we, are we there? Are we done? Are we 75% <laughs> of the way there? Like, it's better, but there's still work, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the chat, I mean, there's a couple of challenges. A, it's not black and white. Like, I don't think it's a finish line. I don't think there yeah. is one. And I think the finish line is constantly moving, right? I think we are better than we were. But also, if you look at over the last 20 years, what has happened in the workplace and what affinity groups have looked like, right? What the, what the names of what the different ways that those are structured in employee resource groups and what does what do healthcare benefits look like like what self id all of the things that are happening that we're moving forward as organizations it's the 
you're never going to cross the goal line. And that's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. I think because if we think that there's somewhere to go, then it's something that we finish. And I think as long there's as many diversities as there are people in organizations, because what we're searching for is not highlighting and making sure everybody's diversity is recognized. We're looking for these more well-rounded ideas of what authenticity looks like, that we don't just make sure, well, the LGBTQ employees are taken care of and the BIPOC employees are taken care of and our veterans are taken care of. Like there's, it's it's not like that. It's so um, interwoven and and the way that, that that affects the whole culture that we're we're creating a space where everyone belongs, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that inevitably is recognizing the uniqueness of every single person. And I think that is a much longer goal. I mean, a much longer thing, something to strive for. Um, so, I mean, are we, I don't know, we're probably closer than we've ever been, but I think the end line is changing faster than we will ever get there, which as an organization also fits right into a growth mindset, right? We're not, nobody's just gonna go as the organization and meet their goal and hit their quota and do the things that they wanna do and be like, all right, we're good. Like we're done. No, we're not. There's always more, right? Right. it's, It's part of it. It isn't just something, it's not just something we're checking off. I mean, I think that's the change of this is not, DEI is not an HR issue, right? It's an organizational cultural issue. And when it becomes part of our culture, we become so much more nimble because we don't have these objective deadlines that we think we need to make or the, this quota system that we need to do. It's it's part of who we are as an organization and that morphs as it has for years with changing trends, technology, all of the things that happen that change our business also change our workforce. And we need to be able to continue to adapt knowing that that's we'll never rest on our laurels with DEI in the same way we will never rest on our laurels with um, any kind of innovation initiatives because that's just not how mm-hmm. business works. The business is not moving forward, it's dying. It's the same with our people. It's a great analogy. Um, so the last question I have for you is one that I ask all of our guests on the show. Uh, can you share with me a moment of leadership that changed your life? So for good or for bad, if you said, that's the way I want to lead or nope, not like that person. (laughs) Something that that changed the way that you viewed um, the world because of a leader. Yeah, absolutely. It was actually uh, my, the one that came to mind when when I first heard that was my sister. And this wasn't even in a business context, but it was Mm -hmm. the way in which you handle people. And so my dad had had a stroke. Uh, We were trying to get him home from, we were on vacation when it happened. We were trying to get him home. And I was, I had for years worked at an airline. Um, and so I worked at the, on the ramp at Vail. So I had like moved multiple people up and down stairs mm-hmm, in those mm-hmm. little mini wheelchair things. And so I was doing, so we were doing that. We're sort of trying to get my dad home and I'm the oldest. And so I was having this interface with the social worker and um, she's like, well, if you can't walk, you can't get on a plane. And I was, you know, exhausted and emotionally spent and all the things and just like enraged. But this woman had to sign off on it, right? Like I had to get her to do the thing that I wanted her to do. And I, I had all the facts in the world (laughs) and the historical experience of this person being incorrect. And I was making that very clear. Like I was going to argue my way out of it 
and dominate my way out of it. And my sister, like, you know, was, I don't know if she was in the room or maybe outside. And she just came in and tapped my leg and said, um, Ash, hang on one second. And she, and she talks to this woman and says, I love your shoes. They're so great. It was like, like the, <laughs> it was like this absolute tack from, from me. And I was just like throwing facts at this person in a, in a unkind, probably demeaning way because I wanted what I wanted. Right. And my mm-hmm. sister came in and with one olive branch of connection within four minutes, the paperwork was signed and we were on our way to the airport. I mean, it was the, it was the wildest thing of, of how humans respond. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what, what do you, what do you want? That's kind of that long view. Like, what do I want from this relationship? And not in a, you know, I get something you, uh, you know, I get something means you don't have something not in, not in that way, like more in a, how does this work out for both? There's always a way that this works out for both of us. Yeah. How can I have that perspective of it isn't a lose? It's not a win-lose. It can be a win-win. I just have to, I have to figure you out. I have to figure out your why and come in with that piece for connection. And then we're collaborating, right? It was, it was, it was a beautiful moment. Anyway, that, that was, that was the one that, that came was just the, the, the kindness yeah that I thought had absolutely nothing, which had zero to do with the facts of what we were trying to accomplish or my rightness in my perspective, but absolutely got us exactly what we needed significantly faster than than my fact-laden bluster, so. Oh, that's an amazing story, I think, of, of pulling together, just recognizing someone for a moment for their humanity, something about them that they brought, and then, and it just, changes everything flips the switch when you figure out what they're what they're bringing to work and chances are i'm sure she had no reason that she was denying this to you in the first place she probably didn't know or didn't know where the form was who knows but (laughs) yeah but it doesn't you know you're not it isn't it just doesn't it doesn't work when you are bringing when you're not when there's no connection like it just doesn't it's just not it's not how things happen great story of of the power of connection there and and living that authenticity so thank you ash we appreciate you being here today on the leadership 480 podcast uh thanks so much beth i I love what you all do and and bringing these different perspectives of of what leadership looks like is, is so inspiring so i was thrilled to be part of it and thank you to our listeners who took part of their 480 minutes to be with us today. And remember to make every moment of leadership count. <laughs>